Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemisa Benalti from the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Nina Powell about her book, Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era, Think Global, Act Local, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Nina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on board. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a New Zealander. I am based at Johns Hopkins University, but actually at the Bologna campus. Um, They've had a campus of SAIS there for over 65 years. Um, And previous to that, I lived and worked in Berlin at the Hedy School, and I did a PhD at Oxford, which they call a DPhil. Um, And yeah, I could tell you a bunch more, but I have uh, a real interest, I guess, in environment, uh, environmental change, social change, and hence part of the inspiration for this book. Wonderful. So I did want to ask you how you came to write uh, this book, Transnational Advocacy of the Digital Era. Will you tell us that story? Sure. So I was working in Berlin at the time at the Hurdy School, and I had finished my first book, which was all about the UN system and how um, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the International Organization for Migration adapted to climate change. So I'd been deeply immersed in the literatures thinking about UN institutions and if I'm honest, I was I was ready for something fresh. You know, I'd been working on it a long time. And a friend of a friend who happened to be in Berlin mentioned this gathering. She said, oh, there's this gathering of organizations, groups like Move On and Get Up and Campact. And I looked at her quizzically and thought, I don't know any of these groups. What did they do? So I went ahead and looked and I was like, huh, okay. They claim to have like millions of members and these organizations are all over the world. They're in like Germany and they're in New Zealand, my home country. And wait, they're claiming all these victories. How come I've never heard of them? And how come I've never seen anything written about them? Am I, is it just me? Or maybe they're not that significant. And through this personal connection, I meant, um, managed to get along to a dinner. Um, well, I didn't actually attend the dinner. I sort of walked up and chatted to one of the leaders of the network that was gathering all these different organizations together and said, I'm really interested. Can you tell me more? And can I study you? And that started a longer conversation, (laughs) which involved me writing the book. And it wasn't simply access the first time. Obviously, for those of you who who are engaged in research or curious about it, it it took a number of, you know, meetings and discussions and me flying to various countries and spending time sort of convincing the organizations, the activist groups I study that I was going to do a good job of studying them um and an honest job and also that they could have a a useful and constructive dialogue with me um and so i spent five years essentially doing a lot of ethnographic work looking at how these activist organizations from germany to poland to sweden to new zealand to south africa use digital technologies to campaign Fantastic. So you just mentioned ethnographic work, uh, but that's not the only sort of research method that you use uh, in the book. Can you can you describe for us some of the methods that you used? Sure. So the first thing to say is um, the book is a series of case studies, essentially, of organizations. So these are digital, what I call advocacy organizations, which I can explain more later. And they're not just platforms, right? These are groups of individuals that have offices, just like, you know, Oxfam or Amnesty International but use technology to mobilize people. And why I say that is because um, I, I did what most political scientists would do when they you know, study organizations using a mix of qualitative and quantitative um, tools. I, I went and interviewed over 100 uh, of, of these activists 
Um, many of them I interviewed a number of times. I tried to interview most of the founders of the organizations to understand why did they actually set up an organization like Move On or Get Up in Australia. Um, as I mentioned, I, I also did field work. So I spent a lot of time visiting the organizations, watching how they campaigned, which was really interesting. Um, because often I think a lot of the research looks at the, the digital footprint. So we get to see what's available online and there's very sophisticated, you know, social network analysis or analysis of tweets, which is great, but it doesn't actually tell us about the humans behind who, uh, the organization who are making decisions about what they share, when they share, what they link to, um, when they start campaigns. So I visited, for instance, a group in Austria called Aufstehen and sat in their offices and watched how they launched a campaign from one day to the next. And I'd go into their office one morning and they had started a campaign they hadn't even been talking about the day before. So this sort of rapid response campaigning. I also spent a lot of time with the organizations that formed a transnational network um, and they had summits on a regular, more than once or twice a year, they would meet like that first meeting I mentioned in Berlin face to face. And so one of the underlying themes of the book is that even in the digital era, face to face meetings are crucial. We really, as humans, build trust in this way and activists who use digital technology also need to meet face-to-face -to, -face to develop um, collaborations. And so I spent a lot of time watching how their conversations evolved, what information they shared, um, what uh, then came out of these summits and collaborations. And in addition to that, I collected a bunch of data working with some great research um, assistants here at, at SICE at Johns Hopkins. Um, we gathered a series of uh, campaign actions so these were um, actions that were posted mostly on, on Facebook um, and also triangulated with their websites and, and, and Twitter. So it could be something like an online petition to save refugees or to save the climate. Um, and we collected them for four organizations over a one-year period with a, a total database of 150 actions. And we looked at um, a, a series of different issues, which I'll talk to more about things like what issue they focused on, who they targeted, domestic or international, um, as well as whether or not they were partnered with uh, a domestic or an international actor. So the book is hopefully relatively comprehensive. There's lots more to be done. I would definitely not say it's the be all and end all, but I tried to cover um, a mix of both deep ethnographic uh, interviews, case studies alongside this data set. Fantastic. So let's dive into the argument. Um, now in the book, you argue that there are five attributes that distinguish digital advocacy organizations from traditional non-governmental organizations or NGOs. Um, can you explain this argument for us? Sure. And before I do, I just want to do a little call out to the amazing work that came out of Syracuse University, because some of this work um, uh, has, has come out of uh, conversations with the Transnational NGO Initiative. Um, Hans-Peter Schmitz, who used to be based there in Tosca, um, and Michael Dedman, and I actually collaborated and wrote a piece with them um, about the impact of digital technology on NGOs. And that's important because I think the work um, of Hans-Peter Schmitz and other others in this space have really crystallized the importance of understanding NGOs. But what my book tries to say and show is that um, a lot of the focus on NGOs is limited because we haven't looked at the ways digital technology has changed the very form of organization. Um, and just a quick clarification here, a lot of people when they pick up my book assume I'm just talking about social media, maybe it's collectivism, all these online petitions, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't have any impact. I'm actually talking about a new form of political organization. So I'm not interested in like specific tactics, but rather how digital technologies have enabled a new kind of organization to emerge. Now, let me explain, that gives me the, the perfect starting point to explain these five dimensions. 
Um, so in the book, I, I contrast the sort of established wisdom about how NGOs operate and their defining features with these new groups. And to hold in your mind, some of you in the US will probably be familiar with Move On, which has been around the longest and is one of the organizations I studied. So if we think about Move On, one of the things that's fascinating is that it engages regularly in election campaigns. This is the first defining feature. And what I mean by that is they campaign for progressive candidates and try and oust or undermine conservative candidates. Now, this is very different from how we typically think of NGOs. When we think of NGOs, we often think about them, um, and actually Hans-Peter Schmitz has written about this with George Mitchell, that they are charities. That means that they get tax benefits, but they cannot engage in political electioneering. They can't go out and say, you have to vote for the Democrats, right? They are curbed by their legal status. What my book argues is actually that we're seeing new forms of organizations that are explicitly political, whether it be Move On in the US or Get Up in Australia. And I show in the book that actually groups that Get Up are not just electioneering, they're actually often very powerful. So Get Up, for instance, in Australia, helped to unseat Tony Abbott, a former prime minister, from his um, seat in Warringah in central Sydney. And even Tony Abbott himself has acknowledged this. And they do that using conventional tools of like getting out to vote, door knocking, canvassing, but also on the back of very sophisticated digital analytics. They can figure out where they should door knock, what kind of messaging and framing is most important. So this is the first point that, that organizations I study are involved in elections and pushing for progressive candidates. And I should note they are all progressive. The other um, features are quite uh, collectively bound a rapid response. So organizations that I study can set up an online petition from one day to the next. They're multi-issue, which means they're not like Greenpeace, um, which focuses on climate or Human Rights Watch, focuses on, you know, human rights or amnesty. These groups are constantly pivoting between different issues. And their campaigns are based on what their members think is most important. So they're member-driven in the sense not only that they have members, but that they survey them regularly, often by email, and or using analytics, they can send out an email and see which emails and which issues, therefore, get the highest pickup rate. So on Monday, you could send out an email about saving the climate, Tuesday, one about refugees, or even on the same day, and decide which campaign has the most purchase, and on that basis, make your campaigns. So in the book, I make this argument that this is a very different model of campaigning, because when we think about advocacy in a traditional NGO space, we think about groups that have sustained commitment to a cause. You know, the women's rights movement doesn't like survey its members and go, oh, one day we'll do this campaign and one day we'll do the next. They're like, no, we have to keep working on it. And so my argument is that we need to understand the power of these groups is not coming from their expertise, which is how most traditional NGOs do, but from mobilizing people, from mobilizing their members to both take action online as well as offline in street marches so that they can, in some cases, not always, harness a digitally networked power. This is the argument that I make um, in the sort of one of the first th main theoretical chapters. Thank you. Uh, now, in the book, you you chart uh, basically how this digital, digital advocacy model emerges and how it spreads internationally. Uh, can you tell us about this process? Yeah, it's really fascinating. This was um, one of the chapters I is kind of, you get deep into the empirics here. Um, because the story is essentially that in 1998, Move On started in the US. 
And other scholars, I should note, have written about MoveOn's impact in the US context. People like David Katz um, in Political Communications has written a great book called The MoveOn Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy, where he argues and shows that it had this massive impact in the US because not only was it doing online petitions, but it was collecting the emails of individuals who signed up to these petitions and then using them in subsequent campaigns. So David Carf has written this really great book about MoveOn's impact in the US. My book builds on that and so is well, what's the global story? And this is something I feel like as an IR scholar and somebody who also I would say speaks a number of languages because I speak German and Italian with a bit of Spanish and French and I you know, know the New Zealand Australian context well as well as living in the UK. This gave me a massive advantage to do this research. I think it would have been much harder without it. And of course there were some shortcomings because I don't speak Polish, I don't speak Hungarian, I don't speak Swedish. There's a number of organizations where I had to rely on you know, various um, online translate platforms. So we know that anyway, Move On starts in 1998. And near the beginning of MoveOn's life, um, a guy called Ben Brenzel gets quite involved with the organization and he becomes a critical um, real driver of the expansion of, of this model internationally or the diffusion of this model. And Ben Brenzel also works at Avaaz, which is an international digital advocacy organization. And he gets really fascinated by the model and thinks, ends up in Australia spending some time with GetUp, which was an Australian group that had already set up because some Australians had been working in the US and had become familiar with MoveOn and Avaaz. And he, go, he thinks to himself, this model is really powerful. Why don't I try and seed organizations elsewhere, try and support activists to understand how this model of member-driven rapid response um, activism can work. And so he went to the UK and try and, you know, it took a couple of rough starts, but gets an organization um, going there. Um, and then over time brings together in 2013, a number of these first organizations, which you'll notice are almost all in the Anglosphere, the US, Australia, the UK. He also helps one in Canada with the exception of a group in Germany, which is a kind of interesting side note that some German actually political scientists uh, and social movement scholar, PhD students, had become really fascinated by MoveOn's impact during the Iraq war and had even gone to the US and rocked up at MoveOn, knocked on the door and said, we would love to start the German MoveOn. And at the time, because the executive director of MoveOn didn't know these two people, he didn't hand over the email list that MoveOn had German members on their email list, which weren't really any use to move on. They couldn't really do anything with these German members. But because they didn't know these two individuals, um, they had to go back. It was Felix Kolb was one of them and, and sort of set up their own organization from scratch. So we had these five organizations all emerge um, basically between um, 1998 and 2010. So just over yeah, 10, 12 year period. And then Ben Brenzel brought a network uh, of the, these organizations together um, and said, should we formalize this? And the organizations decided to set up a network called OPEN, the Online Progressive Engagement Network. And one of the aims of that network was to help each other learn. So help move on, learn from what was happening in Australia and get up or compact in Germany. But in addition to, to promote the spread of the model um, internationally. And so Ben has gone on around the world when he was in the role as executive director to try and spread these organizations and spent time in Israel and Ireland and France and South Africa and Sweden 
Hungary, Romania, like a huge diverse array of countries. Um, and this network continues to grow. I should note has a new executive director, Giovanni Negretti, who is now trying to um, support the development of digital advocacy organizations in Latin America. And they've got a new group that's part of the network in Brazil. Also um, conversations about new groups emerging, I believe, in, in Mexico. So this is something that's a, a moving piece even beyond what I've got in the book. It's fascinating. Um, so I, I want to ask you about the campaigning model that's used by digital advocacy organizations. What are the strengths and weaknesses of this model? Now, this is a really fair question because when I start always presenting, it can often sound like I'm a great enthusiast and I think everything these groups do is right. And I'm a total techno-optimist and it's not the case at all. I'm just as curious as probably some of your listeners about the, the weaknesses as much as the strengths. And I should also note that the organizations themselves have deep reflections, just like we all do, about the strengths and weaknesses of their work. So one of the real weaknesses that I, I kind of highlight in the book and in my work is that um, being rapid response means you quickly take on new issues, but you also quickly drop them. So an example I often use is when um, the refugee so-called crisis um, in, in 2015 uh, sort of was, was evolving and emerging and getting a lot of coverage and tabloid news, number of these organizations quickly pivoted to run campaigns to welcome refugees. Now, many of them weren't doing so beforehand. So this was a shift in focus. Now, in the UK's example in 38 Degrees, they scaled up quickly. They had over 100,000 people sign their petitions. They, you know, got were part of a movement that made, um, put pressure on the prime minister, David Cameron at the time, to welcome more Syrians. It was like a small emergency quota, but still it was a concession. The problem was after a couple of weeks of this, they dropped the campaign and they dropped it because they were rapid response and because they were member driven and their members were more interested in other issues. Turns out saving the bees was a higher priority than saving refugees. Now we can all debate which is more important, but in terms of our understanding of advocacy, unless you're sustained, unless you actually see follow through, did those refugees actually arrive? Were they given, you know, the access to education or um, housing and other rights that they, you know, should have been. Uh, what was the follow-on? Unless you do that, unless some organization does that, we all know that it's very easy for politicians to make promises and then nothing to happen. So one of my critiques of them is that that while this kind of fast-moving advocacy can work very well in, in, in these kind of heightened moments of crisis, it also, if you shift too quickly and unless somebody else is doing the follow-through, um, can mean that you might just get sort of hollow wins. Um, and I think the organizations are very aware of this. And so we can come back to how the, the model is evolving. Wonderful. Um, so I want to move to the transnational level. So you mentioned uh, OPEN, the Online Progressive Engagement Network. How has this network structure shaped transnational collaboration? So what is fascinating about OPEN is that um, it's a network of organizations that share progressive values, but not a similar cause. So as I said, these, all of the organizations get up, move on, Campact in Germany, Action Station New Zealand, campaign across multiple issues, right? It could be domestic issues like income inequality or saving a park or a river right through to trade agreements. 
which means there's an interesting question about what binds them together. And what I argue in the book is that they're united around this common model of advocacy that I spelled out earlier. And not only that, they're often the only or the first organization in their own country to have that kind of advocacy model. Now, obviously in the US, Move On is no longer the only one that does anything like it. It spurned lots of others, Color of Change, for instance. You know, there's 350.org on climate. There's so much happening in the US space. But if we were to rewind back 25 years, you've got to remember it was a very different context when it started out. And if we look similarly at, say, Poland, when Aksha Demokrasia, which is the Polish digital advocacy organization, started out, they really struggled to try and explain their model to their funders. So this gets me to my first point. What Open can do is help these organizations connect and learn from each other learn specific tactics, technology. They often share technology, share ideas about how to raise funds. For instance, they all rely predominantly, um, often over 80 or 90% on member donations, on crowd financing, not on foundations or you know government grants. They're independent and relying on, on their members for grants. But this also takes learning. How do you get the most donations from your members? Some organizations like Campact have been very good at monthly donations and this is crucial for organization survival um so they they connect also to to enhance their campaigns so there are a lot of conversations that i they followed around their refugee campaigns around 2015 and 16 about well what framing should we use how do we get people who don't normally care about refugees to care and then the third um question that i sort of ask and look at in the book is whether or not they cooperate on common campaigns at the same time with the same target. And I'll, I'll leave it for there because it's a bit of a cliffhanger for the next chapter. Wonderful. Um, so I did want to ask you, that's a great segue. I wanted to ask you about sort of the very systematic analysis uh, that you do um, examining the issues, targets, and partners in transnational campaigning. What kinds of trends do you find there? Yeah, so this um, particular part of the book is where I, I rely on this data set I mentioned earlier of 150 campaign actions, which are from four, just four of the organizations. So it's not representative of all of them. Um, but it's useful because it gives us a really clear way to see when and why the groups campaign transnationally. And what I try and do, and I should give a bit of context to your listeners, there's a large literature in international relations about transnational advocacy. And this dates back to work by Keck and Sikink in 1998, um, which was a book called um, Activists Beyond Borders, which makes really wonderful sort of strong arguments for why activists around the world might connect internationally at conferences, form alliances and networks to try and push, say, human rights or women's rights. However, one of the, the aims of this book is, uh, is to kind of update some of the thinking that came out in 1998 and say, well, what does that look like in the digital era? Do we see new trends emerge, right, of advocacy? And so to answer it, I, I look specifically at three dimensions. I look at the issue that groups campaign on, the target, whether it's a national or international, and who they partner with, like if there's an NGO. And what I find is that the range of issues they campaign on um, is large in terms of focus, but about 53% are um, domestic. And then the other, just under half, are, um, are international, transnational in some way. So it could be like a trade agreement. 
So what we see from that is there is a significant proportion of their campaigns that focus on issues beyond that spill over the national border. Secondly, I find that almost all of their campaigns focus on a domestic target. So out of 150 campaign actions, actually only three have an international target. So while they often focus on international issues, they very rarely actually try and say, you know, the UN or the World Bank or the IMF or the UNFCCC. Rather, they say, you know, Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, or Angela Merkel, as it was then, or, you know, the US president or a minister, that's who they're addressing in their actions. And that's important information because there's often an assumption in international relations as we've become more globalized, more interconnected, as international institutions uh, have more authority, that states give them more ability to, to, to make rules, that we will see a shift from the national to the international level, that more of the contestation would happen internationally. Um, some scholars would say, actually, maybe we'd still expect most of it to be national. There is a bit of a, there is a bit of a debate about whether, where we would expect it, but I think some scholars would expect it to be more international. And what my book says is even in the digital era, even when we have organizations that can easily share campaigns that meet regularly, have high trust, work on refugees, work on climate, their focus is specifically at the national level. Wonderful. Um, so focusing specifically on climate action, which you just mentioned, um, can you tell us about how uh, open organizations, so members of this online progressive engagement network, uh, have they how they've contributed to the climate movement? Yeah, and one of the arguments I try and make in in the book around their campaigns is that while they don't often campaign at the same time on the same issue with an international target, they can still be very engaged in campaigns on global issues and do what I call digitally distributed campaigning. So I'm going to explain this concept because I think it's it's most easy to see in the climate case. And I think there's the most like highest impact and success. So when we think about um, traditional climate campaigning and a lot of there's really great work by other scholars like Jennifer Haddon, um, who's written a book called Networks of Contention. What we look at is the ways that NGOs go to the UNFCCC and try and lobby and access decision makers to, to make a fair and binding and strong climate agreement. Now that is an important part of activism, right? Going to an international organization and trying to shift the decision makers uh, views. What I argue though, is that there's often also another dimension, which is activism that happens domestically um, to put pressure on governments, maybe in the lead up or after a big agreement, say the Paris agreement. You wanna put pressure on decision makers in the lead up to Paris to, to, to take a really strong position and then to implement whatever agreement they have. And what I describe in the book is how the groups that I study are particularly adept at doing this kind of domestic-based activism because they can mobilize thousands of people's on, people on the streets. They can work also, and they do collaborate. I should note this. They often do collaborate with other movements, including 350.org or, you know, with other uh, campaigning groups, say like Greenpeace. Um, and and they can campaign at the same time on the same issue, like climate change, on the same day, but then focus on their national decision maker. This is probably a good example is Fridays for Future, the youth climate strikers. These were marches that were millions of people across the world, all taking an action, but they weren't targeting the UNFCCC. They weren't saying, oh, the UNFCCC, write this in your agreement. They were saying in Italy, just outside my doorstep, 
you know, Italian government do this and Germany do this and New Zealand do this. And this had added value because they were part of this global movement, but they were distinctly targeting the nation state. And I guess the sort of uh, relevance or kind of significance of this finding is that the nation state is still really important. Even on international issues, we need to be targeting the nation, the nation state. Um, and, and that activists who have all of these tools um, to, to campaign and share messages have specifically decided this is the most effective way that they can do activism. It doesn't mean that there aren't other effective ways. It doesn't mean that it isn't sometimes effective to go to international summits. But as a, as a field of scholars in IR, I think we've missed some of these more national dimensions. It's very compelling. Uh, so uh, the book also shows that there are some digital advocacy organizations that are more staff-driven and others that are more member-driven. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and this builds on the earlier question of the strengths and limits of the model. So I mentioned that 38 Degrees, for instance, was very quick to drop its campaign on refugee rights and switch to campaigning for bees. Um, why? Because it was rapid response and it was member-driven. And over the time that I spent with these groups, there were some real moments of kind of reflection on the limitations of this model. And this happened particularly around after Brexit and after Trump's election. And that's because the member-driven model maybe works for majority issues, but for minority rights, it's not so effective, right? Even with a group of progressives, a big broad group, minority rights like refugee rights were hard to keep campaigning on. And there was a, a period of a lot of kind of reflection on this model of rapid response member-driven activism where some groups decided that they wanted to have a more staff values-driven or steward-driven model. And what that meant is they would still do digital campaign, they could still do rapid response, but they would have some long-term objectives they were working towards. And you could see this, say, and GetUp had a strategic plan for, you know, here's our next four to five years. This is what we want to achieve. One of these was to get all first women and children out of offshore detention. And then a subsequent one was to just close down the offshore detention centers, which as many of your listeners will be aware of um, on Nauru Manus Island were, you know, contravening all sorts of international laws and having terrible effects for everyone um, in, inside those camps, but had bipartisan support, right? This is an important thing to note. It wasn't that easy or that popular to campaign against them in Australia. And so GetUp had to work over a number of times to convince its members, to bring in new members, to find different ways of framing its campaigns in order to, to build a real um, mainstream broad support. There were very strong like refugee-specific organizations in Australia. But one of the things that was tricky is the refugee organizations had quite a narrow membership. And one of the things that I, I witnessed one time, I was driving in the car with one of refugee, uh, GetUp's refugee campaigners. She was coordinating a meeting across the refugee sector and she was like talking about, you know, the range of tactics from more radical right through to more kind of mainstream tactics um, to try and get a group of asylum seekers to stay on mainland Australia who were there for medical care. And this ended up being an extremely powerful campaign called Let Them Stay. But it was coming back to my original point, it happened not because members demanded it, not because members in a survey said you should do this campaign. It happened because Shannon as a campaigner, had decided it should be a priority and she was doing everything she could to bring the members along with her. So the book really reflects both on the strengths and the limits of the model, but also shows, because they had the privilege of being with these groups for over five years, how they themselves are changing and evolving the very model that they started out with. 
it's fascinating and gives us a sense of perhaps what things might look like moving forward. Um, so the book focuses on progressive digital advocacy organizations, uh, but I wanted to ask you about far-right transnational networks. What, what do those look like? Yeah, great question. And um, I sort of hinted it in the conclusion, and I've now, uh, the last year or so, been working on an article asking the very question, is the far-right emulating this organizational model? Because as I said, it was sort of diffused proactively by Ben Branzell and the Open Network, who went around and tried to find progressives to start up organizations or supported people that reached out to them. But they, of course, had a very strict rule. They would this this was definitely something they would never ever share with the right. And I should add to that, in fact, um, any group that was ever seen to be like assisting or supporting a right wing group would be kicked out of the network. So it was a very while well, it's called open. It was a very very clear. Um, criteria, you had to be progressive and you had to um, contribute just to progressive causes. So what I found was um, in a paper I'm working on with uh, Annette Heft at the Weizenbaum Institute and Michael Vaughan, who is now at LSE, is that there are a number of copycats, cases where right-wing groups, actors, have seen the power of the left-wing organizations and thought, we want to do this too. David Cups has mentioned this previous in his work. There were a number of attempts to copy Move On around the Iraq war period. Move On, that was when it really came into its own. It was seen as extremely effective mobilizing people offline. And so groups um, like Vanguard uh, tried to copy. There is one organization that's not so powerful now in the US that is still alive. All the other attempts kind of died out. It's called Grassfire. There's an uh, organization in Germany called Patriot Petition that copies Campact. There's an organization in Australia um, called Advance Australia. It was, again, a very proactive effort to create a conservative movement. So they use this language of we're a conservative movement. We give power to our members. They have online petitions. Um, so they have very similar, very, very sort of a, a similar language around what they do. Um, and then there's Citizen Go, which is by far the most powerful. It's an international NGO. And I should say there's a lot more research coming out on its power and its networks. Um, some really interesting work. So we look at these four and we kind of show that they copy a number of the elements of more rapid response online petition. Um, but what they seem to do, and we haven't done five years of ethnographic research. This is based on publicly available data. What they seem to do is more what you call astroturfing. It's more top-down, hierarchical, um, saying, kind of trying to facilitate members um, in a particular direction. And they're less interested in, in kind of listening or surveying or doing analytic activism. Um, so this piece is still, um, uh, you know, it's ongoing. It's not yet published. So we'll, we'll see how, how our, our, our findings land. But it's what I think is a really important thing to take note of is that in general in the literature on advocacy for the last 20 years, there's been a focus on progressive causes. And now there's been a big shift to think more about how uh, conservative or morally conservative groups are also using similar tactics and strategies. So I'll note that uh, in the conclusion of the book, you offer some uh, some potential explanations for why it is that it, uh, organizations on the right uh, appear to be more top down and seem less likely to uh, adopt a member driven model. But uh, maybe we'll leave that as a teaser for listeners to go out and uh, and read the book themselves, because um, I, I thought that that was very thoughtful as well. Uh, now, Nina, we've obviously only skimmed the surface of uh, the content that's in the book. 
Um, I wanted to ask you if there's anything we haven't covered that you think is important for listeners to know. I guess for listeners to understand that the organizations that I've studied are part of a ecology of advocacy actors. So they don't stand alone. And one section of the book, which I think is this ample space for others to come in and, and, and look further, is the way they cooperate and collaborate with existing NGOs. Because to me, asking the power or the strength of it, the model on its own is not so useful because these organizations often work in cooperation with other NGOs, not always. And to me, it's a question of when do they compete and or how do they effectively collaborate? with more issue-based NGOs, because I don't argue in the book that every organization is going to become like move on. Although there are some interesting trends of emulation where other NGOs like Greenpeace have picked up on some of these like online petitions and digitally distributed campaigning. But to me, the question is more, okay, here we have a really powerful way to mobilize thousands of people on the streets, but it's not deep organizing as Harry Hyde would talk about. These are groups that aren't like unions. They're not necessary, although they're trying to develop that capacity to really transform their members' interests and to really develop their skills. And also they're not the sort of issue-based advocates who are super nerdy, you know, the ones that can go and say, these are the six things that need to go in the UNFCCC um, agreement that comes out this year or the UN Global Migration Compact. They're not following what's happening at the international level and international negotiations so much. And so you need those different actors and it's how do they then collaborate and work effectively together? And I think that I sort of tease out a few uh, pointers on that as some of the organizations and examples that do that really well. Um, but I think it's an open question to sort of investigate more systematically. Thank you for adding that. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time, um, uh, but I wanted to ask you one final question. So this book is obviously now out in the world. It, it, uh, listeners should know that uh, it has also received an award and uh, is currently shortlisted for another. Um, so my final question to you, Nina, is what are you working on now besides this uh, fantastic paper that you just described? Yeah, I have three things I'll mention. One is a really exciting new um, book project, which uh, Mette Alstrup San Giovanni at Cambridge and I are working on, on how digital technologies are helping or hindering climate activists. So it obviously builds quite neatly, but we want to go beyond the groups that I study. Um, and look at a range of ways that maybe the state can surveil, use digital technology to surveil as well activists, but the ways that uh, technologies can also be used like satellite data to get, gather data on, on, on what's happening in the climate. So that's one book. A second um, article that I'm working on is a slightly more theoretical one, but I think a really important contribution. And that is when we think about NGOs, we tend to think about them, as I've said, as charities. And we tend to think about them as not engaging in political campaigns. And we tend to think about them as getting money from like foundations. And that limits our understanding of how they operate, how vulnerable they are to government influence and the kind of influence they exercise. So I'm arguing that we need to look at the legal model that NGOs have, because it varies. Move On, for instance, has both what's called a 501c3 and a 501c4 status. So it can get tax benefits and pretend, you know, have this sort of NGO typical structure as well as be a political action committee. We need to understand that those different models. Secondly, we need to understand the funding models. And I make an argument for like the different ways NGOs, including crowdfunding, can get can get funded. So that's an article that's trying to get us to think um, based on really what I learned in the book. 
And the third thing that I'm doing, which is super exciting, is I'm hosting over 20 academics this coming Monday in Bologna for a workshop on challenges and opportunities in global and transnational advocacy, which I'm co-hosting with Nina Reiners, who has also a great book out, which I'd highly recommend um, on the power of international experts in human rights body. We also have people like Philip Ayob, who's got a new book out on the counter movements to the LGBT. He's written on LGBT. Um, and now he has some great work on, on sort of the far right. And there's actually a number of scholars who are writing now on transnational advocacy networks around the far right. So there's um, going to be a, a really fascinating conversation. Um, I'd love to spotlight all of the participants, but I think talking about all 22 of them might be a bit long for the listeners. So keep an eye out. Um, I think there's some great papers and great research that's going on in this space. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Nina. Um, the, the, all of the projects sound amazing. Uh, I hope you'll come back and talk to us about this book project uh, when, it, when it comes out. Um, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. Thanks so much, Lois. I really enjoyed it. And good luck uh, with the rest of your day. The book is Nina Hall's Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era, Think Global, Act Local, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Thank you for listening.